Now you can hear me. I am Pamela Pierce, and I coordinate events here at Penn American Center, and I want to welcome you. Um, I am so thrilled with the turnout this evening in this terrible, terrible weather. We will try to warm you up, and we'll either even give you some wine and, and chips and stuff at the end so we can have, have a little, little fun then. Uh, before I tell you about um, the evening that you're, you've come to, I want to uh, draw your attention to a flyer that each one of you should have on your chairs. We are doing a benefit um, for Bosnian writers on November 30th at Symphony Space. If you look at the roster of writers who have lent their support to this, you get a sense of how desperately important it is. Uh, winter is coming. There is access to food and medical supplies and all the necessary things, but the writers and their families there do not have money. So our, our goal is to send money Yes? No? Okay. You're here for an international evening of another sort, which is the Writers in Exile evening. And um, it's always a pleasure to present one of these. I love working with this group better than practically any other one, so it's a lot of fun for me. The way that the evening will go is that Irina will make an introduction after me, and then each of the readers will read in their native tongue for about two minutes, and then they will read in English. So the the evening will be in English, but with a little taste of uh, the language of the writer. As I said, we will have a reception for everyone afterward, and I hope you all enjoy yourselves. Thank you. Irina. Good evening. It is very, very pleasant for me to stay before you, especially in a condition as such but nothing could keep me away from that evening because my president today is going to have a very big pleasure to introduce her as a first uh, participant of this evening. As you see, our participants are according to the alphabetical order. So nobody could say, uh, say anything who is first or is second. It is the way the father's name began. And uh, <laughs> so I'm not going to take much of time. I'm sure you all are very eager to hear what our distinguished guests are going to read, including tonight between us is, uh, especially for me, very big guest for the first time, a president of Ukrainian pen. He came yesterday from Kiev. Uh, Dr. Professor Sverstyuk, welcome. Allow me to welcome. I thank you very much. And now, would you kindly, my dear friend and president, take over? Thank you.
Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure for me to be with you, but I feel very be humbled by Irina's undue kindness to me. Um, I also did not prepare any text in my native Hungarian, but since it was announced that you need the flavor, I most certainly will say a few words in Hungarian. Nagyon boldog vagyok, hogy itt lehetek, és sose gondoltam, hogy ez az írás, ami lassan 20 évvel ezelőtt készült, egy ilyen helyen kerül felolvasásra. Azt még kevésbé gondoltam, hogy ilyen kedves és nagy közönség előtt történik mindez. Azt hiszem, a magyarból ennyi elég, és most visszatérek az angolra. Now I, I am going to turn to English and uh, say a few words. I have written this piece over 20 years ago, and a great deal has happened, as you know, since then. The fact that 20 years ago I had the access to a visa that I could go back to Hungary for the first time after my escape after the revolution was simply unbelievable. When I came back, people asked me, why did you escape? Can you put your finger on it? I said, I cannot put my finger on it, but I'm going to write it down and introduce you to my alter ego. And when you see what happened to him during those horror years, you will understand. And my answer is, I came because instinctively I wanted to avoid becoming what he had become. Now, without further ado, Confession of a Marxist Puppet Master. My motto is an Arabic po uh, proverb which reads like this. Don't be too sweet because people will eat you. Don't be too bitter because they will spit you out. During the revolution of 1956, he was 12 years old. He was racing on the boulevard, wide-eyed, carried water for the thirsty freedom fighters, ran all the way to the Austrian border, then returned to Budapest, because in the middle of the chaos, he forgot to tell his parents that he intended to flee to the free world. Now, he is a professional, new intellectual, party member, well-known sociologist. His name often appears in the newspapers and scientific journals. He drinks excessively. Presently, his favorite author is Bulgakov. 
He talks little and slowly, but watches all the time. Already acquired an apartment. Only once in a while, cautiously, does he meet the members of the old gang, his university chums. One evening, after the third glass of Albanian cognac, he began to talk. Although his confession is not unique, it accurately ref reflects the Weltanschauung, the existential, existential philosophy of his generation in Hungary. You know, those, only those people are being kicked out of our company who deserve it. Those who don't even make an effort to play the puppeteer's role even half-heartedly. You may do anything. Nobody would notice it as long as you hold up the puppet representing you. The puppet's face is well-manneredly rigid so that you can put any words into its mouth. You may freely kick your friend in the ass if your puppet bows afterwards. Then you may apologize by referring to a momentary blackout, to collective responsibility, or to some disturbing news of uh, foreign policy. Soon he, the abused one, will begging you for pardon. How could he even suppose that you assaulted him deliberately? You may be late everywhere. You don't have to keep any promise. You may get away with doing nothing in your office. Only the excuse text has to be convincing. Say, your grandmother died, uh, you have a personal crisis. Even more effective, start complaining about how compassionless people are in general. Then, talk about your new plans, serendipitously found ideas that captured your imagination, and describe briefly how you want to accomplish them. Thus, you don't have to lift a finger. It doesn't work, or someone becomes a nuisance, if someone becomes a nuisance, cut his throat. Tell later that he had committed suicide because you have discovered his counterintelligence spying activities, and in his last lucid moment, he put the knife into your hand to compromise you. People will believe you since there is a need for spies all the time. Do anything or do nothing. Only the ideology counts. Have it ready at your disposal at any time. Also, keep it up to date. Check the syllabus. There is a wide variety in the Book of Wisdom, different shades, types, for all seasons. But don't ever, ever tell the truth, because then they will expel you. Don't tell you cheated on your wife because there was a good-looking chick and an opportunity, so it just happened. Rather, talk about the significance of progress. 
she could have promoted you. The ugly tactics of women or the power of alcohol. Better yet, paste a bluebird on your puppet, then you don't need to give any explanation whatsoever. Don't tell it that you don't work because you are lazy. Hate the job. It doesn't interest you. Or that it gives you more pleasure to collect, quote, numbers, unquote, sex scalps among women. Tell anything but the truth. If you do, it's not the puppet, but you. The naked you on the stage and the numerous poker-faced other puppets like Lilliputians who descended upon Gulliver will attack you, tie you down, and will gyrate their dance macabre over your cleansed but lifeless body. Other topics. I tell you a story of my love, our love. At that time in the beginning, we had no warm home, soft nest. We owned only the doors so that we could lock out each other. We also had suffocation to blow onto each other. And we had comers into which we could squeeze each other. This way, we could spare the considerable expense for a warm home, a soft nest. Well, are you interested in the history of my philosophy? Voila. voila. At first, I knew all the right answers. Later, I arrived at an inquisitive stage and my entire life twisted into an enormous question mark. I was hanging, dangling on it, and believed that the rope around my throat was tightening irrevocably. Irrevocably. <laughs> Sorry. But I was young and my body was extremely resilient. I went on living without ever solving any of the problems, without ever getting even one of the answers to these urgent questions, even though they had meant to determine the mode of the rest of my life. In those days, I could never imagine how anyone could exist this way that my little scattering actions could not be disciplined, could not be herded into any kind of prefabricated, illusory structure designed by the forever croaking strategy cocks. You know, my friend, he continued, all of us are prodigal sons. In my family, I am the one. Millions of families can boast or curse similarly while talking about their offsprings 
who are like me. The only difference among us is merely quantitative. My history goes like this. My progenitors had survived heroically in this most rotten spot of Europe. They did not multiply much, only moderately, enough to fertilize the Hungarian soul, soil with one body. They threw in their seeds only to guarantee their own crops. Every generation added a bit to this family heritage. They did not want to waste, rather hoarded. Their frugality was a par with the narrow feudal conditions economically, with the anachronistic modes of the Middle Ages spiritually. Their greatest profit and most coveted, gradually growing interest was the recurrent promise of the future. This is how it became possible that I inherited an already considerable fortune myself. Well, as you know, one has to invest the capital gain, has to make it work. That's why my parents had sold the ancestral mansion from above their heads and gave up all their earthly goods. Now, they could collect the long-awaited dividend, me. I am a hard glass, able to reflect perfectly all the glitterings of the world's gems. Diamond hard, you can cut windows facing the future into me. All hopes and anticipation of some hundred years' toil are exclusively mine. But what can I do with it? Today, the economy is still feudally narrow. The promises, too, are the same if one reads them backwards. So, I squander and drink away the inheritance leisurely as it behooves a prodigal son. An old sage once said, those were the true lazy people who had been constantly in the mood to do something. Well, that's how I got hold of a wife when it became obvious that birth and death were rather easy, I decided to make the, strength, the stretch between the two a trifle more tolerable. To promote this project and to become eligible to apply for an apartment, one needed a partner. After an early lecture at the university, I proposed uh, to a superficial acquaintance of mine, a fairly decent-looking girl. Along with her came two friends of mine. We walked to City Hall. There, the legal papers uh, were acquired, 
Soon, the apartment materialized also. I broke the nutshell of the institution of marriage with little or no effort, and like many others, found the shell empty. I live and have someone to sleep with. No hassle. For a temporary solution, this will do. Too bad women always want to look younger. Nothing else is so incongruously funny and nothing makes them seem older than this ceaseless endeavor. Well, here you are. But people in the free world don't understand us. They are above it all. But we natives can never step out of our circles, our roles, cannot break out from behind the square box enclosure unpunished. We are subdued, full of inhibitions, maybe lazier, because why be different? What's the use? I no longer go to concerts or to the theater as we used to together, remember? What for? By necessity, by profession, I am compelled to read the reviews written by those who lie better than I do. From their criticism, I learned the proper text for tomorrow's ideology session. If I, am in a in a, I am, if I am in a desperate need of sedation, I can always put on a record. One doesn't have to enjoy Bach or Bartók in a crowd. Formalized acting does not interest me either. I can always read the play if I want to. Out of the mass entertainments, I tolerate only the movies. Every week, I continue wasting two hours of my life in the dark where I don't see people's faces and they cannot see mine as the sweat gradually covers my countenance and slowly, slowly melts the wax on it. The wanderings of my contemporaries, the world trotting of these pseudo-Ulysses do not make me jealous or bitter. I never covet their peregrinations, even though the government granted me permission to visit no other countries but Bulgaria and Romania. Once there, in the company of some Soviet comrades, I got dead drunk and joined them in singing old reactionary songs of patriotism about the Volga River and Lara's song from Dr. Zhivago. For a few minutes, I felt light, almost fulfilled. I really, I really don't know what freedom means in the West. I don't really care. Because when you heard this swollen, oh, <coughs> I'm sorry. 
because when your head is swollen, it is considerably more difficult to put on the mask. My puppet game, my idiocy, is not a historical category. I too had dreams once with my friends about the redemption of the world. Now, at the threshold of manhood, they seem like no more than mere illness of adolescence. I write articulate, concise, well-composed articles and sometimes smuggle the gradually decreasing sediment of our old dreams into them. Once in a while, I even argue for struggle, for fighting, there isn't enough sobriety left. Anyway, what for? For whom? All of a sudden, he seemed sad, pale, more and more depressed, his tartar face blank. His steel blue eyes gazed coldly at the solo Matisse reproduction, reproduction of the room. With a languid, emotionless gesture, he threw the butt of his long-burnt cigarette to the garbage pail. One could read nothing from his half-opened eyes anymore. Like an eel, slippery, smooth, a free swimmer. While saying farewell, without any provocation, someone asked him, he was happy, he said. He didn't seem to comprehend. This is an anachronistic question. It cannot be answered. I am. I live. I exist. If you prefer, I am alive. No more, no less. He turned slowly, walked back to the cocktail table, and refilled his glass to the brim. prepared anything in Farsi either, but I will say just a few words. Uh, 
Salam, Halatun Chetore, Foshamadin, means hi, how are you? Welcome. Uh, the story I'm going to read to you is called The Sun. Can you hear in the back? They say they can't hear. Is there any other way I can do it? Uh, can you hear now? All the way in the back, they say they don't hear. I have to take it off and hold it. How is this? Yeah, this is much better. Okay, this is called the sun. Parvin watched Bahman solicitously at, as he went to the outside door, leaving the house. Her sister Zahra, sitting next to her in the courtyard, finishing her breakfast tea, said, God preserve him for you. Anything could happen in Tehran these days, Parvin said. He's a sensible boy. He'll stay away from trouble, Zahra said. They got up and took the dishes to the pool in the center of the courtyard. Parmin put soap in a pail and added water to it from the pool. She washed the dishes and Zahra rinsed them under the faucet, but her mind was on, her mind was on Bahman. There was so much turmoil in Tehran. After doing the dishes, Parvin and Zahra watered the trees and flowers, which stood in clumps, startlingly bright in the two flower beds. And then they swept the dust, which came in waves from the roof during the night. When finished with all that, Parvin went inside to tidy up the rooms she and Bahman occupied on one side of the courtyard. Zahra, her husband, and their two daughters had the row on the other side. Parvin had moved in with her sister when she was widowed three years ago. Her husband had left enough money for her and Bahman to live on, but she wanted to be with her sister. Bahman and her cousins spent a lot of time together, and that was a good thing too. It was like Bahman had acquired two sisters, they did their schoolwork together with Bahman helping them, helping them out when they had difficulties with the subject. When they were finished with their schoolwork, Maryam and Shirin did embroidery or knitting, and Bahman sat with them, telling them the events of his day or reading poems to them. Bahman was as serious in manner, Parvin thought, as his cousins were carefree. Once a poem Bahman read to them about a stray cat being cruelly killed by a gang of boys had upset Shirin. Why should we listen to something so sad? You ought to know about sadness. It's a part of life, he said. Parvin had interceded, but why dwell on it? There are other happier things to think about. Bahman just shook his head. She wiped off the dust from the pretty friezes of lion heads and fruit above the fireplace in the living room, which stood between Bahman's and her own room, rearranged, rearranged the vases on the mantel. Then she sat down on the rug with the busy pink and maroon floral designs and baby hair, which was still full and free from gray. She began to braid, braid the hair, this is how my dear husband liked it, she thought. He used to say it makes you look... <laughs>
It's okay. Okay. She began to braid her hair. This is how my dear husband liked it, she thought. He used to say, it makes you look like a teenager. What an odd thing to say for a quiet man like him. In some ways, Bahman had taken after his father, coming out with strange, unexpected remarks like that. He looked like his father, too, thin and tall, with his slightly hook-nosed, curly brown hair. In a year, he would be finished with high school, and she and her sister would have to look for a wife for him. That day, Bahman did not return at the usual time after school. In the evening, when Hassan Zahra's husband came home, Parvin asked him, did you see Bahman? Bahman sometimes went over to his gift shop, and the two of them came home together. Hassan shook his head. The dinner was ready, but Bahman still had not returned. At 9.30, they gave up and began to eat without him. They sat around the large pewter tray on a rug spread in the courtyard and ate kebab, rice, salad, and duk. Beetles darted around the flower beds. Cicadas were screaming in the tree branches. The familiar sight was a little depressing to Parvin, with Bahman missing. It isn't like him not to let me know he's going to be late, she said. He probably got stuck somewhere doing some errands, Zahra said. He likes to go to poetry readings, Mariam said. Did you notice anything different about him this morning? Parvin asked Esther. No. Parvin thought perhaps she had been aware of something. It was as if she had, been the sh she had seen the shadow of trouble from the corner of her eyes, like looking at the reflection of a fly buzzing somewhere. Hassan got up. I'm going to the tea house. If you see Bahman, ask him to come home. He nodded and left. A little later, Zahra and her two daughters went to bed. Parvin went outside and went, waited for Bahman. She sat by the door with her chador wrapped around her and kept looking down the alley. Except for the murmur of voices from the tea house and the water running in the gutter, it was quiet. The bazaar running perpendicular to the alley was closed. Children were all inside. The traffic had slowed down. She saw a figure approaching. She got up to see who it was. Then she recognized Bahman's footsteps. Is that you, she asked? Yes, what are you doing here? You're late, I was afraid. You worry about me too much. I'm not a child anymore. It's past midnight. He did not reply. They went inside and he went to his room. With Bahman safely in the house, Parvin calmed down somewhat. I'm probably overprotective, she thought, he being an only child and fatherless. I have to accept that he's, he's no longer a child. His room is filled with books. Surely he's wise enough to take care of himself. During the next few weeks, Bahman seemed more and more restless. He had a distracted look about him, and his voice was high-pitched and nervous. He would hurry into the courtyard with his, from his room as if about to do something, and then turn around and go back in. He climbed the stone stairway to the roof and came back down again. He often came home late. 
Parmin watched his movements, every expression on his face. She wondered if the loss he had experienced about his father was somehow manifesting itself in this new restlessness. If he was even slightly late after school, she was worried. She leaned out of a window or went into the alley and waited for him. Then she would see him coming on his bicycle, his books in a basket, his shirt blown out in the wind. Bahman, is something bothering you? She asked him once. No, why? You aren't yourself. You are too focused on me, he said. Still, the real significance of his erratic behavior did not hit her, not until later. Then she went back to it again and again, wondering she could have, done, she could have and should have done about it. They were having the monthly prayer session. She and Zahra spent two days preparing for it. They covered the one wall in the living room with black cloth, put the throne there for Ahuns to sit on, set up the immense samovar and dozens of cups and saucers. They hung above the outside door the black flag with Allah hand, hand blocked on it in white calligraphy. At one o'clock on Friday, the women from the neighborhood began to come in, wearing their black chadors. They sat cross-legged against the wall and talked while waiting for the, for the first ahund. They all knew one another and had a lot to talk about, whose child got married, who had a baby, whose old aunt died. Then an ahund came and sat on the throne, his long robe hanging down around him. He began his sermon mostly about the suffering of the imams. The women cried, some beat their chests. When he finished the sermon, Zahra served him tea, putting his payment on the saucer. He left and the next Ahun came in. When the last Ahun left, the women drank tea and talked again. Bahman came out of his room and began to pace the courtyard. He stopped near the oval door of the living room, making the women jump for their chadors, which they had let slip down, and said, Do you think imams hear you crying for them, or God is listening to you? There are other more important things you could be doing. He spoke rapidly, but in a sharp, clear voice. His eyes, though intense, had a dimness, as if light was about to be extinguished in them. His hair was wild and matted down on his temples. Bahman, Bahman, Parvin said finally, coming out of her shock. What are you talking about? She got up and went to the doorway. He went on. What's the point of religion if it doesn't help the miserable on this earth? Those ahuns go on and on and tell you about the suffering of people living centuries ago. What do it, why don't they talk to you about the misery going on right now? One day you are going to understand what I'm telling you. Yes, one day soon. His tone now was prophetic, oddly similar to the way the Ahun spoke at the height of their passion when giving sermons. Everyone was hushed, listening, a little uneasy. Soon something is going to happen. Have you lost your senses, Parvin said? Her words came out so quietly that she was not sure if he, ha- if he had heard. She was aware of an aching distance between him and herself at that moment. At the same time, she wished she could protect him. 
You're just tired. You stayed up so late last night. But he went on. Look at the condition we all live in. Next time you're outside, see how dirty the water flowing in the gutters is, how filthy the walls. Look at all the beggars crawling around the mosques. You're so used to them that you don't even notice. Then abruptly he turned around and went towards the outside door. Parvin heard it bang shut and felt as if it were slammed in her face. She sat down again. Someone has been putting wrong ideas into his head, she said. He reads all those books, Zahra said. He thinks too much about things. No telling what young people are thinking these days, one of the guests said. How can we possibly have any peace on this earth without religion, another woman said. After a while, the guests left. Parvin and Zahra began to clean up in silence. Then Zahra sighed and said, Don't take it too hard, sister. He's young and has a lot of things churning inside him, but he'll grow out of it. I hope you're right, Parvin said. Bahman came home early that night, holding a pretty box with a ribbon around it. He gave it to his mother. I'm sorry I disturbed your meeting this afternoon. She opened the box. She found a green silk scarf with designs of maple leaves printed on it. It was exquisite. She pulled him to herself and kissed his forehead. Still there remained a tiny gap, a dim, formidable area between them, perplexing her. It was as though a window to his mind had opened suddenly, revealing to her a storm raging. Why can't you tell me what's upsetting you, she asked. It's just this feeling of helplessness I have, that something should be done about the sad state of affairs all around us, And yet there is so little I'm doing about it, any of us are doing. Stay away from trouble, will you, for my sake, if not for your own. He looked around the room as if to make sure they were alone. My friends and I have been meeting and discussing different matters. What matters? Social issues, the injustice done to people, poverty. His voice had a vibration to it a kind of feverish excitement. We analyze these issues and try to see if there are things we can do about them, he said. He held her shoulders and looked into her eyes. Wouldn't you like to see our streets free from beggars, our children not afflicted with all sorts of diseases, people old and young being educated? She could see a menace from the corner of her eyes. I'm afraid. There is nothing to worry about, he said. He spent the rest of the evening with his cousins, joking and laughing with them. He put one and then the other on the back of his bicycle and rode around the courtyard. His spirits seemed lifted. Then one afternoon he was walking in the courtyard with a book in his hand, memorizing a poem. Parmin was in the living room and Zahra in the kitchen. There was a loud knock on the outside door. Bahman stopped and listened. Who could that be, Parvin asked, getting up. She was uneasy without knowing why. Why should the knocks make her anxious? Then she understood. It was the the way Bahman was reacting. 
He was standing stiffly and had gone exceedingly pale. The knocks persisted. There was no mistaking the urgency about them now. Zahra came out of the kitchen. Why isn't anyone answering the door? I'll get it, Bahman said. He went to the door. Parvin could hear him talking in low tones with some people. She and Zahra put on their chadors and joined them. Two policemen standing, were standing by the door. Bahman turned to his mother and aunt. I have to go with them. What for? Parvin asked, her voice shaking. There must be a mistake, Bahman said. He looked even paler. One of the men said, you seem like good people. What happened to him? What has he done? Parvin asked. Her heart was thumping, sinking. Not anything to be proud of, the policeman said. He has been participating in anti-government activities, the other policeman said. Bahman started to say something, but he stopped. Please wait until the older man of the house is in, Zahra said to the policeman. policeman. We must take him away as soon as possible. The man of the house will be back soon, Parvin said, her tone lingering uncertainly between pleading and command. Bahman and the policeman had reached the middle of the lane before Parvin recovered from her shock and began to run after them. Her sister followed. Don't go with them, Parvin said, catching up with Bahman and grasping his arm. I have to go back inside. Take me with them, she said to the policeman, a spasm of fear shaking her. Go inside, Bahman said again. The sisters followed all the way to the, gun, to the wide avenue. Parmin kept saying his name, Bahman, Bahman, as if she were chanting, but he had stopped looking at her. When they got back inside, Parvin sobbed for so long that Zahra forced her to lie down in bed. He'll be back soon, I'm sure, she said, trying to calm her down. Parvin could not remember the policemen's faces, only their uniforms, but she thought they must have been cold and cruel-looking, blunt, making it inevitable for Bahman to yield. She waited for his return, there was a curious slowness to time, every minute crawling into an hour. Hassan visited the local police stations and others, but no one would tell him where Bahman was. He visited some of the prisons, hoping to find out about him, but he was turned away. He said to Parvin, I told them he was just going through an adolescent state. All young men go through a rebellious period in one form or another. He shouldn't pay such a high price for just a state he is going through, Zahra said. Maryam and Shirin had become withdrawn. All gaiety drained from them. I wonder if there was something I sh could have done to stop him, Parvin kept wondering. She recalled her conversation with him about the meetings he attended and how vehement he was about his ideas. There had been something disquieting about it, but obviously of urgent importance to him. Thinking of that, it seemed there was nothing she could have done. Still, she kept blaming herself. A vision of him in jail kept coming to her. 
He's sitting with his knees clutched to his chest on a dirty cot in a dark bare room, but she stopped herself before worse images could intrude themselves into her mind. A knock on the door would make her jump. Maybe it's him. When the mailman came, she dashed to the door, hoping for a letter from him. She looked down the alley and could see children and young men coming and going, but no Bahman riding his bicycle, his shirt blown out. She kept looking every day, thinking of all the other times she had waited for him, and he had finally returned, but there was no sign of him, not yet. Uh, dear friends, it's, I'm very happy to recall the words that I um, sent to you in greeting from a concentration camp. Sorry, I forgot. Minulo 15 років з того часу коли я з архіпелагу Гулагу звернувся до моїх колег по Перу з подякою за те, що мене було прийнято почесним членом пенклубу. Fifteen years have gone by since I have sent my word of thanks to my friends in Pen Club for making me an honorary member. З того часу за 15 років сталося багато великих подій. Моя батьківщина жила під псевдонімом СССР. Many things have happened in that time. My fatherland had been living under the pseudonym USSR. І ви дізналися про її ім'я після Чорнобиля. And you have discovered and found out its name, Ukraine, after Chernobyl. Я хотів би запропонувати вам уривок з моєго есею про блудних синів України і вірш «Віра, надія, любов» про живу дорогу, яка веде від царства блудних синів. Um, I would like to read today a poem, Faith, Hope, and Love, as well as fragments from my essay, Prodigal Son. Я хотів би запропонувати вам уривок з мого есею про одного з українських поетів, який загинув у концтаборі і образі якого ви можете уявити мою батьківщину. I'm also going to read uh, fragments from uh, another essay about a colleague of mine, a friend of mine in concentration camp, Vasilstus, about whom you will be, through which you will get an idea about my fatherland. Віра, надія, любов. Faith, hope, and love. Спрошу. 
Beloved daughters of Sophia, at one time I thought of you as sisters of mercy, bringing what we lack just in time. I have loved each one of you in turn, while the other two receded into the background. Vera was my first romantic passion. With her, I felt I needed nothing more than to fly and shine on her azure wings. Then came radiant love, captivating the world and eclipsing both her sisters and her mother, Sophia. Somewhere apart in the rarefied atmosphere of the future, hope was hiding quietly and silently, like the star of the homeless on the brink of death. I shrank from peering into her face, but great symbols draw near suddenly, and only then is there a meeting with them living while the play's still on. When I met you face to face, I discovered that you sisters are long-suffering, holy, with deep and bottomless eyes, teachers of suffering, guides over the abyss of both fear and uncertainty, with eyes more severe, oh, much more severe than those of the three I had once loved in turn. Faith makes her entrance tall and regal, without her azure wings. Her innocent gaze points to the cross. Carry it until you conquer it, and you will carry it as long as you live. Then comes love, unattainable, like an embrace from the crucified one. Give yourself away, again and again, as long as you live. And finally, hope. God, how near and dear to me, those blue eyes unclouded by anything, that intelligent brow unperturbed through the ages. And you feel there's no fear in the world as long as that forehead continues to shine ever brighter as you approach infinity. You will live as long as you continue to shine, shine in spite of everything. Beloved sisters, only now I see you as one dear soul. Your profiles change according to the light in my eyes. One dear soul, and I am alive as, as long as this soul is in me. Кожен з нас повторює притчу про блудного сина. Але я хочу вам прочитати уривок про блудних Many of us speak about the parable of the prodigal son. I want to read a fragment from the prodigal sons of an empire. All of human history teaches that he has the greatest strength who willingly takes up the cross and shoulders responsibility for the fate of his nation. Human experience demonstrates that people gain strength when they are nurtured on their own national roots, their own ancestral faith, tradition, their own language. We, however, are children of empire, forced to live under imperial conditions. 
Empires uproot people, separate them from their national identities. The result is apathy, the emptiness and apathy of a brutal age. At their very center, empires breed only dead souls. They give birth to prodigal sons, people who are eager to serve in accordance with man-made laws, who are no longer guided by God's commandments and who are no longer loyal to the testament of their forefathers. Empires force people to renounce their differences as well as their responsibilities. Instead, empires legalize and prom promote evil, for they need people who will serve as their loyal warders over a servile, pliable population. They need people who aspire to nothing more than to serve in the interests of empire. Empires fear religion, for men of faith place loyalty to God as their first priority. Such men, therefore, are free. Great individuals are destined for destruction in an empire, for they are different. They have not renounced their faith and traditions. They assume responsibility for their ancestral home, They are not prodigal sons in an age which places prodigal sons on a pedestal. In the last ten decades, in the last decades, excuse me, the Ukrainian nation has had many people who were atoning for the sins and weaknesses of a generation of prodigal sons, a generation stifled by conformism to the prerogatives of empire. Many of these people were writers. The staunchest among them was Vasil Stus a poet who swept across Ukraine's literary firmament like a meteor. Not many noticed the light that Stus carried during his lifetime. They were bedazzled by too many other bright distractions on the empire's overcast horizon. However, the death of this martyr cast a long shadow, a shadow that perhaps lost its individual characteristic as it elongated and spread across the land, but one that left strong images of suffering, of a universal kind of suffering that unites all of us on earth. Vasil Stus was a person of rare moral talent. He was a voice of conscience in a world of shaky and faded concepts of honor, truth, and decency. He carried the spark given him by God with dignity and princely courage. Without stooping, and without evasion. This is the path on which poets die. Let me give you a brief overview of his biography. He was born in Vinnytsia to a family, a peasant family, on Christmas Eve of 1938. He spent his childhood and primary school years in the Donetsk region, graduated from the Donetsk Teachers Institute, spent three years in the army, in the Urals, graduate, did graduate work at the Institute of Literature in Kiev, from which he was expelled for taking part in civic protests. For seven years, he worked at all kinds of temporary blue-collar jobs because he couldn't get a professional job. Arrested in 1972, he was sentenced to five years in concentration camp, followed by three years in exile. He was rearrested again for his participation in the Ukrainian Helsinki group, another five years of concentration camps. He died there on September 4, 1985. He was 47 years old. Prison set him free 
It allowed him to turn full face to God. He embraced the wisdom of Job, intuitively knowing that his destiny, his road, would lead to Golgotha. Spirituality and deep religious commitment were an integral part of Stuss's life, not a set of tasks. Stuss wrote about himself in one of his poems as a person who had a one-on-one relationship with God. I do not have the courage for my talents, dear God, but you take me like a clod of raw clay and knead me and knead me and flatten me with all your fingers, creating an image so that yet another fragment from Ukraine would earn the right to reflect your truth. And further on, and now my soul's become so transparent that it no longer casts a shadow of its own. Stus understood and embraced his destiny. He wrote, Blessed is he who knows how to lose everything when he lives in a time of loss. He was even grateful for his difficult fate. How good that I do not fear death and do not question the heaviness of my cross, that I've not bowed before you judges because of a premonition of unknown depths, that I have lived and loved and not befouled my life with hate or curses or regrets. My people, to you I will return when in death I'll come to life again. Today, Stuss is returning to his country and entering its literature as a tragic voice of fate. We are learning to read his poetry as a sigh of the age, like a secret little voice that is within us. Today, Stuss's voice is imbuing values in countless dead souls that a free Ukraine is charged with reanimating. Thank you. Can you hear me? Okay, well, Jesus, too loud, okay. Well. The short piece that I'm, I'm going to read first appeared as a weekly column in one of the Chinese newspapers that I wrote in the 1980s. Uh, so for some Chinese flavor, I guess I just read the last paragraph as it first appeared in the paper. Yeshi 
，其中之一是那个在母亲心目中永远含冤哭泣的小女孩子。This is about my third sister. In Chinese, there are two words for sister. For the older ones, it's called 姐姐 or 姐 For younger ones, it's called 妹妹 So when I refer to 三姐 in my piece, actually, I refer to my third older sister. So much for the Chinese flavor. Okay. My third sister. Among the eight siblings in my family. My third sister is the fifth child, but the third among the girls. Thus, for us younger ones, she is the Sanjie, the third elder sister. Before my first visit to China a few years ago, after leaving it decades early, my third sister and I were strangers, two bit players in a wartime drama of a broken family. Among millions of other broken families in war-torn China, to care for a family with eight children during wartime was not easy. In my parents' words, it was a karmic burden which hurt adults and children alike, especially those who were driven far asunder by the wanton and implacable quirks of the war. An incidental overnight separation, willy-nilly, could turn into a party of near eternity, beyond the grasp and understanding of all the afflicted. When they do have a chance to reconnect, a faded picture of another era, another place, would be all the tangible reality they have to rely on. The young, eager faces in the picture. When seen in person, invariably look alien with wrinkles, hair speckled with gray or gone, or the loved ones in the picture could have died long ago, unmoored somewhere in an unmarked grave. That's what war does to families. Compared to others, my third sister was rather lucky. She survived two wars. The war of resistance against the Japanese, and the civil war of 1949, or I should say that I'm the lucky one, to have the chance to get reacquainted with one of my lost siblings, my third sister. Though too young to know her at the time when we were separated, yet somehow, I grew up with her through mother's repeated telling and retelling. Of the occasion of the separation, usually, mother, choking with muffled sobs, would not be able to finish the remembering, which over the years became one of my cherished yet dreaded childhood rituals. Mother usually would begin like this: "My poor child," she kept on putting her little bundle of clothing into my bag. I kept on taking it out. She put it in. I took it out. Her words drowned out in controllable sobs. Yes, twenty-some years later, all mother remembered was this scene of the little personal bundle of her eleven-year-old child being repeatedly taken in and out of her own luggage. This parting scene became an intimate yet painful part of my growing up.
when we were young, with mother's tears, my fourth and fifth sister and myself would join in loud howling, shaken and confused. Later on, we learned to comfort mother whenever she started on the story. We would say, it's not your fault, mother. You told us in those days. You could only bring us three youngest ones with you. Sanjie and two older sisters were going to stay with grandparents in the countryside for a while. Then when situation stabilized, you're going to send for them. We could not finish the sentence because we knew that what mother had promised third sister on that winter evening in northern China years ago never came true. A little while turned into a near eternity of decades. That fateful year, my third sister was barely 11 years old. Father was a guerrilla commander, unofficially attached to the Nationalist Army. His loosely organized band of peasant resistant fighters had to fight and fear both the Japanese and the communists. Father's uncertain life made the care of the eight children the sole burden of mothers. Therefore, the older children were sent to stay with my maternal grandparents in the countryside, where mother took her three youngest ones with her, nomadically following father's secretive trail. Therefore, that fated winter evening, mother, carrying me in her arms, followed by her sixth and seventh children, had to enact that heart-wrenching scene of ejecting from her bag that little bundle of personal things that her stubborn 11-year-old kept on putting in. That scene in the years afterwards became a sharp little knife, slowly cutting mother away on many sleepless nights. For many years, third sister's little bundle, which took on a life of its own, had been deeply troubling me, especially on nights when mother huddled us tight for warmth, while outside the winter wind was wailing across northern China's barren plain. I always wondered about that little bundle. Was it wrapped in a piece of dark red plaid, or was the wrapper imprinted with butterflies and wildflowers? And what was inside it? A child's cotton field winter jacket, fluffy, soft, and sweet-smelling, two pairs of couture pants, some cloth socks with embroidered toes, there were special treats for children in those days. Maybe some favorite playthings, a flowered handkerchief, a picture of bright-eyed movie star tore from a calendar. How about dolls? No. They were a luxury beyond the reach for most wartime children. What else was there? A child's desperate longing for love, fear of abandonment, and dark despair. The repeated act of stuffing the little bundle into mother's big bag tells more than childish willfulness. A child who thrusted into the alien adult world of war and separation dares not to implore her mother with this logical plea, please bring me with you and my little bundle, but rather, please take my little bundle, they will have to bring me. Desperate time calls for desperate logic. The little bundle with its mysterious contents is a bargain chip. Its vital importance lies in its staying in mother's bag, 
its unit with the big bag means an assurance that everything will be all right, in spite of midnight firings and early morning shellings. But nothing was all right. It was not meant to be. So for the final time, the little bundle was taken out of the big bag, separate, apart, like a fallen sparrow, windless, never dares to hope, gliding through the air, and the dream, carefree dreams. So was my third sister, tore apart from mother and her younger siblings. The separation lasted for years and decades. During those years, I, the youngest of the pack, did not have memories of my older sisters and brothers. They were strangers, all except my third sister, my Sanjie. For me, she was always that 11-year-old child with a banded short hair, clenching her little bundle of clothes, eyes spread with tears and longing. Over the years, she followed me from continent to continent, from childhood to middle age, she and her punishing little bundle. In May of 1982, I visited China for the first time after leaving it decades early. At the swarming Beijing airport, three gray-haired women in gray huddled together, checking me out against a picture held in their hands. One of the women was my second sister, another the widow of my oldest brother, the third one. You might have guessed it, my third sister. Short-haired, no band, eyes bright with joyous tears, no longer fearful and longing. Decades of separation and strangeness instantly melted in hugs and more hugs. Grasped hands and torrents of words gushing out in breathless haste. Since that winter evening in the 1940s, Sanjie had led as uncertain and precarious life as our own. She stayed with my uncle's family till adolescence, then drifted from village to village as a member of the army's propaganda and performing auxiliaries. Then came marriage and children. Soon her consumptive husband died during the great famine of the early 1960s, leaving her with four children, all under the age of 10. Now, retired after years of harsh struggle, she is relatively happy and content as, as a mother of four grown children and a grandmother of two. Grasping her both hands, I said what I had been wanting but unable to say for four decades. Sanjie, I'm sorry. We are sorry. Mother could not help it. I could not finish. I started to sob in mid-sentence. Sanjay stopped me. She understood exactly what was left unsaid. At that very moment, I knew I was blissfully set free from that haunting image of a little child and her mysterious bundle. Mother was not so fortunate. When she died at 62 in August of 1961 in Taipei, 
only one of her eight children was at her side. Her four older children on mainland China, separated by a political chasm wider than the Taiwan Street, were considered either dead or missing. For her, her third girl child was forever a terror-eyed child of 11, clenching a little bundle of clothes, unyielding and unforgiving. The cause of mother's death was said to be high blood pressure and diabetes. I know otherwise. Mother died because her heart had been broken and tired long ago. pleasure to hear. There were moments that I wonder, really, should we applaud or should we wipe the tears? But applauding, I think it was said, we appreciated, we felt it, we acknowledged that we enjoyed. I thank you very much and I hope you share my words and my thoughts in this matter. And now inviting you all for a glass of wine. I thank you very much and I give you a pleasant night. <laughs>